Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Perklers! Perklers! I don't know what that's from, but I like saying things that way. I feel like it's a holdover from grad school. Yeah, okay. And I feel like it is a Marshall B. Garrett introduction to our lexicon. Probably. Per-plurs. I feel like that came from Marshall. So Yeah, you're right. Marf, this one's for you, boo-boo. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this show as much as Jess is about to and (laughs) come back for more. Every week, we will discuss a new play. Well, they're not new. They're 400 years old. Every week we will discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, that's introductory stuff. You know, everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and, you know, some other cool stuff like the things that we're crazy interested in. Yeah. And this week it is all about Pericles. So it is rhetorical device of the week time. It's how we like to start every episode because we're word nerds. Each week we will draw a random device from our handy dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. Yeah, for actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Yes, and I'm shuffling our rapidly dwindling deck now. Draw a card, chickadee. Chickadee. <laughs> okay, here we go. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Oh. Ooh. This one, this week, is Hendiadus. Hendiadus? What up, Hendiadus? That's Hen- the arrangement of a modifier into a noun and a verb or some shit. I guess. I don't remember at all. I remember the word. Hendiadus. H-E-N-D-I-A-D. Y.S. Hendiadus. It means expressing a single idea by using two nouns rather than by using a noun and its qualifier. Right. Okay. I'm going to say that again for the people in the back like me who don't absorb things quickly. Mm -hmm. Expressing a single idea by using two nouns rather than by using a noun and its qualifier. For example, this is from... Mac Beasy, a.k.a. Macbeth. (laughs) It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Sound and fury being the hendiadus. Rather than, I guess, Uh, furious sound uh, or something, right? I feel like that's a bad example. Well. I can't think of a better one. 
Expressing but a like, single idea using two nouns, so sound and fury, both are nouns, rather than using a noun and its qualifier. So, like, noisy fury would be, sure, would sure, qualify sure. fury, or furious sound would qualify sound. Right. Right? Yeah. Okay, I guess. Huh. So, hendiatus, again, H-E-N-D-I-A-D-Y-S, hendiatus. And word. I don't know why, but this word, because I think it starts with hen, makes me think of a chicken. <laughs> a, I don't know why. I think maybe I think let's that's describe exactly let's, why. Let's describe the chicken with two nouns rather than a noun and a qualifier, and that will be a mnemonic device for hen dietis. I mean, how would you describe a chicken with a noun and not an adjective? <laughs> a chicken of feather and cluck. Oh, all right. Look at you go. It's now time for your extra special Pericles <laughs> Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. All right, y'all buckle up. So uh, you remember a couple weeks ago, Aubrey, when we did All's Well and you went to town with your fucking PowerPoint notes? Yes, which I still haven't used. Yeah, okay. All right. BT dubs. But yes. So this is my All's Well moment. Because this is my favorite play. Pages, um, y'all. Pages. Yeah. So I wrote a paper on shipwrecks uh, about a year ago, year and a half. Um, and I sort of culled some information from that paper for this Burbage break, which is about shipwrecks, just sort of generally, but also not super generally, but also sort of generally. It's so like shipwreck, uh, shipwrecks and weather and things that contribute to shipwrecks okay amazing in in early modern drama and literature uh and then when we get into pericles 201 i'll probably just read the pericles section of that paper because shipwrecks y'all okay i'm so, so ready i'm strapped in i'm ready Let's are you go. ready i think are so are you ready for some some puns yes god yes all right let's do it the canon of early modern English drama is a veritable graveyard of shipwrecked characters and lost resources. I feel real stupid. Why is that a pun? Well, graveyard and shipwreck? Because if you... No. Uh, if if you get shipwrecked and then you're dead, oh, you go okay. in a graveyard. I guess maybe it's not a great pun. It's not a pun. That's a All right. Wonderful so, metaphor, though. <laughs> now I have to uh, walk back. So I grew I up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I grew up on the Columbia River in in the great state of Oregon, uh, and at the mouth of the Columbia River, where I grew up, where the the river meets the sea, it's called the Graveyard of the Pacific because a shit ton of boats get shipwrecked there. So I think that maybe was the okay. I guess it's not a pun. That is hyper local <laughs> dog whistle shit, yes. though. <laughs> so if you're out there in Clatsop County listening, you feel me? Somebody should. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I'm sorry. Go back to your shipwrecks. amazing stuff. Okay. Yeah, shipwrecks are genre defiant. Uh, they appear in plays from Green to Lodge to Shakespeare to Haywood to the dream team of Beaumont and Fletchinger. Fletchinger? That's not who it is. To the dream team of Beaumont and Fletcher and their second mate, Massinger. So shipwrecks. 
<laughs> serve a variety of functions uh, from spectacle to an inciting incident to my favorite, the deus ex machina. Uh, in most cases, however, named characters who suffer an oceanic disaster manage to survive and make their way in the unknown space of the shipwreck land. In Shakespeare's plays alone, characters survive shipwrecks in the Comedy of Errors, Twelfth Night, The Tempest, and Pericles. Maritime travel or warfare is also present in Antony and Cleopatra, The Merchant of Venice, Othello, and The Winter's Tale. Um, the clown in The Winter's Tale recounts the sight of mariners dying in a shipwreck off the coast of Bohemia, but none of them have names. This is a, a thing, is you have to be a named character to survive. Um, shipwrecks lead to tales of rebirth and redemption more often than death and destruction. We get watery deaths all over the place in early modern drama, but they occur in freshwater, like Ophelia, or at the hands of pirates, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or as a result of um, Malmsey, like Clarence in whatever the fuck play Clarence dies in. Three Henry Six? Uh, no, that would be Richard III. He's drowned in a Malmsey butt. Sure. Which to the layperson is a giant vat of wine. Yeah, so I guess not really fresh water either. But not salt water is the point that I made. Right. So Pericles has one offstage and one onstage shipwreck, which we will get into detail later. Shipwrecks and maritime travel in plays have been appearing more frequently in dramatic criticism over the last decade, especially as a part of eco-criticism's gains in popularity. Steve Mentz uh, is probably the, the biggest, most prominent Shakespearean eco-crit guy, and a lot of his work necessarily considers the ocean and navigation of that blue space. In his first book, which is called At the Bottom of Shakespeare's Ocean, uh, Steve Mentz confronts the ocean in the early modern period as undergoing a transition from, quote, alien god space to, quote, a symbol of freedom. Because the ocean was an inherently unknowable and unconquerable space, unconquerable space in the 16th century, it could serve as a place of limitless possibility for the early moderns. So while Mentz is the most prolific scholar of shipwrecks in early modern drama, others also have plenty to say. He's not the only guy out there. Um, James Morrison, not leader of lead singer of the doors different james morrison consider shipwrecks as a great equalizer offering the opportunity for personal or political change he has worked on the tempest and posits that the shipwreck that begins that play offers quote romantic possibilities and in clearing the deck in the minds of the new arrivals myriad political possibilities as well the vast majority of work on shipwrecks in early modern drama revolves around weather and Shakespeare. Surprising probably no one. Uh, the Tempest and Pericles are, I think, obviously the most frequently cited plays, uh, with King Lear being a third because of weather, not because of shipwreck. Because there are no shipwrecks in King Lear, but there's a lot of weather. Dan Victus and Peter Holland consider shipwrecks within the genre of travel slash journey plays. Dan Victus refers to shipwrecks as, quote, a conventional romance device, while also pointing out that these moments were demonstrative of the, quote, real and present danger undertaken by long distance travels in the er long distance travelers in the early modern period. Peter Holland, meanwhile, navigates the connection between travel and place in these plays and how both travel and place are tied to recognition, which is a staple of romance plays that, quote, gives a purpose for a journey. A smaller part of his argument is that to be female, quote, makes travel unsuitable. And I will return to this idea in our 201 episode. Cause I got feelings. Contemporary accounts of real life maritime travel abound in this period. And it is these documents that we can use to build a foundation of knowledge about how the early moderns thought about sea voyages, shipwrecks, and pirates. 
The most famous account of maritime travel from the period is the story of the Virginia-bound ship The Sea Venture, which washed ashore at Bermuda in 1609 without any loss of life and was probably a source for the Tempest. Another famous chronicle of sea travel in the period is Richard Hacklett's The Principal Navigations, Voyages, and Discoveries of the English Nation, which is printed in 1589. Uh, King's College, Cambridge, which owns two printings of the book, calls it, quote, a massive compendium of voyages from antiquity to the present. The book, which is available in a bananas 431-page PDF from Early English Books Online, bears a title page that boasts accounts of ancient English voyages to Syria, Babylon, and Africa, as well as Tudor expeditions to various points in the Americas. Uh, quote, to Meta Incognita, Newfoundland, the Maine of Virginia, the Point of Florida, the Bay of Mexico, all the inland of Nova Hispania, the coast of Terra Firma, Brazil, the River of Plate, to the Strait of Magellan, and through it, and from it, in the South Sea, to Chile, Peru, Jalisco, the Gulf of California, Nova Albion upon the backside of Canada, further than ever any Christian hitherto hath pierced. Ha <laughs> ha, the backside of Canada. <laughs> Hacklet, man. Um, that book, and it's bananas long title, certainly contributed to the national dialogue on shipping and maritime exploration. So shipwrecks and drama can be difficult to categorize since they most frequently do not occur on stage because obvs, how do you stage a shipwreck? You don't have a ship. So for our purposes, a shipwreck is considered an event if it meets the following criteria. One, a named character has boarded a ship bound for a foreign land. Two, that ship is forced to make landfall at an unintended shore either because of weather, mechanical failure, or human error. And three, the voyage incurs some loss of property or life due to the forced redirection of the ship. By this definition, Pericles contains two shipwrecks. Uh, shipwrecks function in early modern romance plays to enact a symbolic baptism and rebirth of characters, in part to calm anxieties in the general populace about the personal and economic risks endemic in England's rise to a global power, both economically and militarily. Pericles, Prince of Tyre, uses maritime travel generally and shipwrecks specifically to bring its characters on a journey of redemption and reunion. Spoiler alert. The shipwrecks provide a figurative cleansing and rebirth from the corruption and contagion of the character's original lands, and the deployment of frequent shipwrecks, therefore, instructs us that maritime travel and shipping were at the fore of the national consciousness. The survival of these dramatic shipwrecks, then, was a way to address and placate the country's anxieties about the maritime operations that would lead to England's emergence as a world power in the 18th century. You're welcome. And you know what? Not only did we get some really cool information about the shipwreck trope in early modern drama, y'all just got a taste of how brilliant a writer my friend Jess Hamlet is. <laughs> so imagine her give, delivering papers with this kind of language. Like, y'all just got a treat. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit of a hack job because I sort of Frankenstein that together. Yeah, but, but it's still your words and your work yeah. and I love your brain and I love your writing. So we should Stop celebrate it. it. I love you. Yeah. Alrighty. Uh, should we should we play a game? It's our new game that we have to play before we summarize the play, instead of as a reward for after we've talked the play to death, because it doesn't work at the end. Mm. So we have to play it now. We call mm -hmm. it. 
this week we're calling it Aubrey Fails at Shakespeare. Yes. Because we've played a couple of rounds where Jess fails at Shakespeare. We still need to find a better title, although I'm kind of, this one's growing on me. Just, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So we play this game when there's a serious disparity between how much one of us likes or remembers the particular play we're talking about. And this being Jess Hamlet's number one absolute favorite Shakespeare play. I and, love this play. And I am at best ambivalent about this play. Um, I made sure to come into this reading cold so that you all could have the fun of listening to me try to summarize this play <laughs> from my memory. And I'm so excited. As I fail. Okay. Mm, you got, and Did I have we... 60 seconds to do it. That's, that's yeah. the game. I have 60 I'm... seconds to try to recreate this play that I don't remember. One minute on the timer. Go. Okay. So... There's this guy and named Pericles, and he's at this other guy's kingdom, and he's, like, trying to marry the dude's daughter, but, like, the king has, like, there's this riddle where he's basically subtweeting the message that he and his daughter are hooking up in, like, a nasty incest way, and Pericles figures it out, so he goes, oh, fuck no, and he, like, tries to get out of it, but then the king knows that he knows, and so by the time Pericles goes home, he's afraid that that king is going to try to kill him, so Pericles gets on a boat, and stuff happens (laughs) to him, (laughs) and he meets this other girl that he actually likes, um, and her name is Thaisa. And then there's a shipwreck and she was pregnant and she died. And so he dumps her over the side of the boat, but like, she's not dead. And, uh, that's my uh, alarm. Uh, um, <laughs> and then he gets older and then they find each other again. The end. <laughs> I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. (laughs) I'm also not right. (laughs) I mean, no. No. But that's what my genius summary is gonna, gonna do for us Thank God. (laughs) Um, yeah, all I, all I ever seem to remember is the opening of this play. I mean, the opening is good. How crazy it is. It's It's good. It's really good. It's cuckoo. So, so with that said, uh, we, of course, try to give you a five-word unhelpful title to help jog your memory about this play. Hashtag, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't jog your memory. But <laughs> mine is, this one starts with incest. Accurate. That is how it starts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mine is a ship. Another ship. Pirates. <laughs> yep. Also accurate. Totally yeah. not helpful. But okay, so also, people ask me why Pericles is my favorite play because they're like, Pericles, uh, because of the pirates, y'all. That's true. You do have kind of a like an academic and also just regular old boner for pirates. I have such a boner for pirates. Yeah. Um, my friend Emma in the hall this week was like, Jess, why do you love Pericles so much? And I was like, Oh my god, Emma, how much time do you have? And I was like, (laughs) Pirates, it it all boils down to, to pirates, but. The thing, right, because so Pericles is my first favorite play and Winter's Tale is my second favorite play. And they're basically the same play, right? Like, they're both romances. Yeah, they're both romances. They're both late romances. They both center on, you know, family sort of breaking apart and reuniting. 
but I don't have problems with Pericles the way I do with Winner's Tale. Like I fucking hate Leontes because he's a d bag, and also I'm really angry um, about Paulina and the statue business. Right. And I think I think that's a complicated familial reunion storyline. But in Pericles, no one is at fault. It's mm. circumstance that separates them, and and that I think is the difference. Also, pirates. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. To answer the question that you you didn't ask me, or to answer the question that you were going to ask me later, which is why is this place so goddamn popular? Well, it's not, but it should be because pirates, and also because this is a a much less fraught uh, redemption play. Mm. Um. So, should we do the DP? Yeah, let's talk about drummer. Let's not be drunk, Aubrey-Anne. Um, <laughs> Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones. So first yeah. off, you need to know that the first character to appear in this wackadoodle play <laughs> is Gower. Uh, he's ostensibly the chorus, right? But he yeah. has a name and his name is Gower. And he's like an yeah. English lord out of fucking nowhere. He's... Based on the poet Gower, if I recall okay. correctly, that I did not know. So yeah. thank you for that. Um, let me let me double check that real fast. So it's a little disorienting, though. Yeah, the English poet <laughs> John Gower, thirteen twenty seven question mark to fourteen oh eight, most okay. famous for his Confessio Amantis, printed by Caxton in fourteen eighty three, and again in the fifteen fifties by okay. T. Berthollet. <laughs> Okay, so why Shakespeare paid homage to this poet in this play at this time, I don't know. Shakespeare and Wilkins, his co-author, could have seen Gower's tomb in the Church of St. Savior, known as St. Mary Overy, in the early 17th century and now as Southwark Cathedral. Southwark. The front... Whatever. The frontispiece to Wilkins' painful adventures, reproduced in Ard... I don't know what Ard is, shows Gower in a square cap and short coat. He stands okay. before a reading desk with Laurel in his hand, symbolic of his fame and perhaps the evergreen nature of his works. Okay. Oh, it's because the source text was written by Gower. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, that makes way more sense. Because yeah. I'm like, as you're reading this, I'm like, what? So Shakespeare saw this dude's tombstone and got inspired? Like, he's like, oh, what an amazing tombstone. Let's make this guy a character in my next play, Wilkins. Yeah. Like, okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So you've got Gower, the chorus, yes. and he's gonna help you with location changes in in this play. I mean, such as it S- as sort it of. Is. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Uh, so then we have Pericles, the Prince of Tyre, who you may have heard of from the play of the same name, Pericles, the Prince of Tyre. Pericles has a manservant, advisor, friend, guy, and his name is Helicanus, and Helicanus is much older than Pericles. Okay. Yes. Then there's Simonides. 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 Okay. <laughs> like I said, I'm going into this cold. Uh, for You're good, baby. Jokes, for the humor, I'm all about the jokes. Okay. Um, Simonides, the king of Pentapolis. 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 Um, and Thaisa, <laughs> his daughter. Thaisa being the love interest later. Yes. Pentapolis. Um, okay, got it. Elsewhere, we have Cleon, <laughs> who is the governor of Tarsus, and Dionysa, his wife. All of these locations will make sense. You need to know the names no. of the locations as much as you need to know the names of the people in them. 
Yeah, but that won't make the locations make sense. Next we have Lysimachus, governor of Mytilene. Also in the town of Mytilene, we have Abod. She has no name. She's just called Baud, B-A-W-D. Basically, it's a madam uh, or a pimp and her confederates. We also have Marina, who is Pericles and Thais's daughter. She comes into play in Act 4. And then there's random fishermen, servants, knights, and most importantly, as Jess has pointed out, the pirates. 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 Okay. It's five minute summary time. Yes. What are we calling the summary this time, Jess? <gasps> so we will now summarize Pericles, Prince of Tyre, for you in a segment that this week we're calling, just like Shakespeare's geography, this summary is all over the place. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Get out! My eyes just rolled out of my head, down onto the floor, out the door. <laughs> you can hush your face off because like you know that was a great time. <laughs> like the spaghetti and meatballs just <laughs> gone out outside. Alrighty, here okay. we go. And <clears throat> go. So Gower tells us uh, that we are about to see the Ritalin Antiochus in Antioch. Pericles shows up trying to win the hand of Antiochus's daughter. He also has to solve a riddle in order to do that. So if he gets it wrong, he dies. The riddle's answer tells us that Antiochus is fucking his daughter. To die because assassin. So Pericles gets on another boat and he goes to Tarsus. And in Tarsus, Cleon and Dionysus are all like, oh, we're sad because our country has famine. And like, what if other countries come in and take advantage of us? Uh, and then Pericles shows up, but he has food to help them and everybody's happy. So in act one, we have country count is three. Boat count is three. Shipper count is zero. That's helpful. Okay, and that's literally all I remember. So, moving on. <laughs> in Act 2, Gower tells us that Tarsus built a statue of Pericles, and Antiochus's assassin is still after him. Pericles gets on yet another boat, and then is shipwrecked in Pentapolis. He's rescued by fishermen, and then his armor washes up on shore. He joins a tournament of knights at King Simonides' court. Pericles wins! Yay! and he falls in love with the princess Thaisa. Helicanus learns that Antiochus and his daughter have been struck by lightning and they've died because, like, deus ex machina for your incest, bro. Yep. Um, also, everyone in Tyre thinks Pericles is dead because they haven't heard from him in a while. Tyre's lords want Helicanus to be king. Helicanus says they need to wait a year and see if Pericles shows up. Simonides tells everyone that Thaisa has taken a vow of chastity, and all the knights leave except for Pericles. Simonides plays the protective father while testing Pericles, and then Pericles and Thaisa get married! So, by the end of Act 2, country count, 2. Both That's count, just in Act 2. You're right. So, accumulatively, 5 boat count we're up to four now we're at shipwreck count number one by the end of act two yeah there's a total count at the end oh gotcha so these are just for within the act great 
You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> uh, so Gower tells us that Taisa got pregs, and Helicanus sent a message saying that Antiochus is dead. So Taisa and Pericles set off for Tyre, but they're caught in a storm. Taisa gives birth in the storm. Then she dies. The sailors toss Taisa's body overboard. It is very sad, and this is usually where intermission goes. Then we end up in Ephesus, where some monks are dragging Taisa's coffin off the beach. Saramon thinks Taisa is only in a coma, and guess what? She wakes the fuck up. Taisa thinks Pericles died in the storm and takes vestal vows at the temple of Diana. Then we're back in Tarsus and Pericles is leaving his infant daughter with Cleon and Dionysa. He names his daughter Marina. Country count in this act is two, boat count one, shipwreck count one. Act four. Gower tells us that Pericles has settled in Tyre. Taisa is in Ephesus and Marina is all growed up with Cleon and Dionysa in Tarsus. But Marina is prettier and more talented than Cleon and Dionysa's daughter. So Dionysa gets super jealous and decides to have her murdered. She hires Leonine to do the murder. Just at that very moment that Leonine is going to stab Marina, motherfucking pirates show up and kidnap her. And Leonine is all... Okay, I guess. He tells Dionysa that Marina is all the way dead. And she lets it go. The pirates take Marina to Mytilene and sell her to a brothel. Marina is horrified that the bod would do such terrible things to all these women, like sell Marina's virginity to the highest bidder, which is exactly what the fuck she's doing. Meanwhile, back in Tarsus, Cleon is tote shocked that Dionysa had Marina murdered. He's like, wife, why? And she's like, because I hate that bitch. Pericles shows up in Tarsus and is devastated at Marina's death. So now he thinks his wife is dead and his daughter. He vows never to shave or cut his hair ever again. Over in Mytilene, Marina has been steadily talking herself out of being raped. And the bod is super pissed at her that her customers keep being converted into virtuous men and leaving. Marina also talks the bod's assistant out of raping her. The governor of Mytilene, Lysimachus, comes to visit Marina and catches his eye. She catches his eye and he gives her money instead of raping her. Now, by the end of Act 4, country count, two. Boat count, two. Shipwreck count, zero. Act 5. Gower tells us that Marina has escaped the brothel. Pericles' morning ship docks in Middling. Lysimachus goes to welcome Pericles, who has also taken a vow of silence, in addition to all of his other vows about not cutting his hair or beard. Uh, good old Helicanus fills in the details for Lysimachus. Lysimachus tells Helicanus that he knows a girl who might be able to comfort Pericles and brings Marina to the boat. Ew, gross. Not that way. <laughs> There's nothing sexy here. It's just like she's a real good uh. singer. <laughs> so while Marina is talking to Pericles, Lysimachus says that he wishes Marina were of high birth so he could marry her. Pericles begins to respond to Marina, and as she tells him her story, he realizes who she is, and we have this beautiful reunion. Everyone is real happy. Pericles hears enchanted music and falls asleep, where he has a dream that Diana tells him to go to her temple at Ephesus. Gower hops in again, tells us that Pericles agrees to let Lysimachus marry Marina, but they all have to go to Ephesus first. At Ephesus, Pericles recounts his tale publicly, and Thaisa hears everything and faints. She wakes up, everyone is reunited, details are sorted out, they live happily ever after. Gower comes in at the end to tell us that Cleon and Dionysa were burned to death in their palace by a mob when they heard that Dionysa tried to have Marina murdered. The end. Total country count for the entire play is six, total bone count is nine, total shipwreck count is two. 
this play is bananas pants. It is bonkers. <laughs> How do we do on time? Seven minutes, but no. that's also no. It's not your fault. I got sure. tongue tied. So we will say for the record, six minutes. All right, no not... better or no worse than we did with my favorite play. So yeah. good for us. <laughs> yeah, it's a little harder when the plays aren't fresh for both of us. True, that is also true. Because, um, like I said, I'm reading cold. Not an excuse, yeah. but still. Also, this play is bonkers. You mm, cannot deny mm-hmm. that this play is wacko. It's like a little ping I mean, pong ball just bouncing everywhere. That's why I did the boat count, country count, shipwreck count at the end of each act. Because, muh. Yeah. Six different worlds in this play. Six. Yeah. And we ping pong between all of them. Yeah. Like, a lot. I think Shakespeare was taking some hallucinogenic drugs. Well, also, he, he had a co-author. Play. Let's not forget about George Wilkins, the All co-author, right. who we have not really mentioned. Hey, there's a co-author to this play. His name is George Wilkins. So Shakespeare had some help being wacky on this one. Mm-hmm. And that's about all I'm going to say about George mm-hmm. Wilkins, because he don't show up in my scholarly stuff. Do we happen to know, though, before we get off the topic of Wilkins completely, do yeah. we happen to know which portions he wrote and no. which ones Shakespeare wrote? No, because there is not really an authoritative text. Okay. Yeah, this is the, well, and that leads us right in. Great. uh, Because the print history is wackadoo, man. Fucking wackadoo. So Pericles first appeared in Quarto in 1609, but it was not included in the first folio. It did not show up in a folio collection until the third folio in 1664. Okay, so that is 40 years after the first folio. That's when it makes it into the collection. It is the only one of the seven additional plays in the third folio that has made it into the accepted canon of Shakespeare's works. However, the 1609 quarto is super fucking wonky. And it is the only one of the corrupted early quartos like Q1 R&J or Q1 Hamlet that doesn't also exist in a similarly dated, more authoritative text. So imagine, if you will, Q1 Hamlet, which you and I, Aubrey, know is a different play. Yes. But imagine we don't have Q2 Hamlet. And imagine we don't have the folio. Okay. That's that's what we're working with. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in, in the quarto, lineation is a mess. Syntax is a mess dialogue is a fucking mess in two places there's confusion about whether a stage direction calling for music has been incorrectly incorrectly incorporated into speech so i forget in in one of our midsummer episodes did we talk about enter four fairies peace blossom Uh... moth and whether the the sort of textual transmission errors about that being either stage direction or dialogue and yes yes we did yes we did same sort of issue here but it happens in two places and it's just about music the thing is is the play's a mess and you might remember uh the norton this the the norton that we used in grad school doesn't divide it into act and scene it's just scene numbers like scene one scene two scene seven scene 14 scene 26 whatever um the arden does do act and scene divisions 
I don't know what the new Oxford does. I would assume they're probably going to go scene by scene. But it's I they're, they're it's, editors are doing their best with this. Frankly, you know the the possible causes for the issues with with the Cordo, um have been. You know, it's been suggested that this is an issue of memorial reconstruction. This is an issue of setting the text from particularly foul, foul papers. And then maybe there was some some use of shorthand somewhere that fucked everything up. But these deficiencies, 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 these deficiencies (laughs) um, have rarely, if ever, been blamed on Shakespeare himself or his collaborator, George Wilkins. It always seems to be an issue of the medium and not authorship. So the bananas parts of, or the, the bananas format, I suppose, of the early text is how we, we just, we can't separate it's there's not enough to go on frankly yeah i think i think that about sums up what i have to say about the cordo i we're gonna i'm gonna talk about some specific examples in 201 and 301 level episodes um but yo shit's bonkers in this play yeah so in other words i mean i think that's a great segue into a production perspective in other words if you're about to produce or teach this play or even just try to read this play or go see it no when you start out that this the text is cuckoo right and write it out is what i'm saying like ride the wave enjoy the ride because it can't be anything other than what it is like if you try to you know sanitize or streamline this text it's just it's not gonna fit it's not gonna work because the whole text is fucked up um which leads me to talk about the first time that I ever saw this play. Um, I was on a trip to Australia in 2009. I just took myself to Australia because a new airline was offering really, really cheap plane tickets. So I was like, LA to Sydney for 300 bucks. Fuck yes, I'm going to Australia. Um, So I got to see my very first, uh, my first introduction to Pericles was at the Sydney motherfucking opera house awesome i know right it was so great um i stupidly thought pericles was one of the roman plays um <laughs> i mean i think i did too before i yeah i um you know because the name sam and let's be fair pericles well, and also because it goes i think you know if you're reading in a collected work i think it comes right after coriolanus because i read coriolanus and pericles yeah. the same weekend for ralph yeah yeah that's true so i mean you know so i went in with um just lots of ideas of what this play was and i had i had no idea but i i was like i don't fucking care i'm seeing it at the sydney opera house so whatever but i think what that production got wrong was that they tried really hard to streamline a cuckoo pants play um and plus they like they were trying to do some really cool stuff aesthetically with like these gigantic taiko drums and silks and they made it very um you know eastern feeling uh you know very sensual um lots of texture it was beautiful it was a beautiful show and the guy playing pericles was like sneaky hot but it it did not help me at all (laughs) to understand the location changes because there are a ton of them so you need to be aware of that um location 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 you need to plan the transitions between the different worlds you have to essentially world build either through costume or set or light or something 
accent, maybe dialect of, of your actors. I don't know. Find a way to differentiate all these worlds and build those worlds because you're going to be jumping between them. And it is fucking confusing if you don't make that clear. So watch out for that. That is a production challenge specific to this play. Uh, also, time goes on and people get old and Pericles lets himself go, literally, and he gets all hairy and weird. So tell your makeup artists and costume designers to have lots of fun with that. That'll be fun. Eight, you get a chance to try some aging makeup, perhaps. Um, I just have this like vision in my head now of when the second time I saw Pericles and it was Greg Phelps who played Pericles mm. at the ASC and he had this crazy beard and like oh, long, beard <laughs> long gray hair, um, just real bushy, like Santa Claus beard. Um, yeah. That production yeah. was great. But it that was. It was bad. It was. And I know Greg is listening. So like Greg, it was a great Greg and Sarah Himes. It yeah. was a great oh, show. You guys. Sarah was so good. She was so can good we, as Thaisa. They were we just, wonderful. Like, can we birdwalk just a second? Yeah. Like, I don't know how much you remember about this production, but I, it's clearly seared in my brain right. because Pericles, but the dress that she wore. Oh my goodness. The costumes in general were beautiful, oh. but she was dressed she fantastically was a vision yeah just i mean like a cloud yeah. just oh oh yeah. i mean lauren also as marina look i that white thing she was wearing good god yeah. y'all um the the costume design for this play was was just stunning and really that was beautiful the how they really handled the world building right was uh color cohesion between you know all of pericles was all blue and except for that janky beard <laughs> Except for the beard. That the beard was bad. Ass beard. The beard was really, really bad. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, you're gonna have yeah. fun with that. Uh if you're working on age aging makeup and trying to find a way to make Pericles, who starts out as a young man at the top of the play and is a an older man, uh middle aged man, um, I suppose. Mm. So you're gonna have to find a way around that. Also, there are some scenes on a boat. You're on a boat. Yeah, You're I think there's a lot. really only one scene that actually takes place on the boat, and that's the the storm where right. oh, okay. Taisa gives birth and is is pushed overboard. But the the boat sort of transitions are key, right? And then when when what's his ass Pericles, uh, <laughs> you know what's his ass Prince of Tyre, that guy. Do you know Do you know that play? What's his ass Prince of Tyre? It's, yes, it's my favorite play. Yeah. <laughs> um when he washes up at pentapolis that's sort of immediately post boat yeah you have to deal with boats but post i think boat. you only have to yeah. stage the boat once yeah also i i don't know i it, now that we're sort of throwing ideas out there like the boat or a boat sort of transition might be very useful visually for an audience to know that you are once again traveling to a new world. Like think about that kind of thing um, yeah. and maybe use it to your advantage when you can. Um, also there's your anachronistic chorus named Gower, a dead poet uh, uh, upon whose text this play is ostensibly based. Um, what the fuck do you do with Gower? How do you costume him? How involved is he in this world? Like you just, you have to deal with him. Um, and honestly, if you try to cut him, that's a gigantic mistake. Don't do that. Don't um, because you can't. You cannot. And and no. you know, there there's some times when you can you know, sure, cut the second prologue in Romeo and Juliet, you know, if you must. Like nobody gives a fuck about that. And it's not gonna affect your understanding of the play. You cannot get rid of Gower, so you need to learn how to deal with him. 
So, yeah. so work around that. Also, just bear in mind that this play is basically Shakespeare's version of the Odyssey. If Shakespeare had like gotten drunk with his, or if Homer had like gotten drunk with his homies and written this really weird, <laughs> really weird story. Um, although the Odyssey by itself is pretty crazy. Um, so this is Shakespeare's Odyssey. And, and by that, I mean, really, it's, you know, it's about a guy on a lifelong journey. It's like a chunk of this person's life. And he suffers loss and weird crap happens to him and then there are pirates and then there's redemption and reunion because it's a romance there it always ends in redemption and reunion and that's the meat and the juice <laughs> of um of this play it always you know with the romances come back to the reunions and the redemption and that's what makes it beautiful so yeah that's the part i love the most um and i same my the timer went off in the game before i could really spit out that like they're reunited and it's great and yeah. all things are forgiven and there's so much there's so much there between now that I'm remembering I'm recalling like Marina and Thaisa's reunion you know the reunion of lost mm -hmm. mother and daughter mm -hmm. and then Pericles gets his whole family back and it's you know it's wish fulfillment right mm -hmm. it's you know that family member you wish could come back and Pericles actually gets to live that dream when the rest of us don't yeah well I mean you know I clearly have have thoughts about the the familial stuff at work at this in in this play because I've sure. published on it. I just I mean yeah, as I was saying earlier, like this play has the uncomplicated reunion and redemption that Winter's Tale sort of denies. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right because there's no there are no bad parties, right? There's nobody yeah. who really needs to be forgiven. It's more like we've come through some crap and we've all made mistakes, and but we're back together now. Yeah, well, and I mean, I love what Gower says at the end, he because he's literally like the good guys get rewarded and the bad guys get punished. He says, I'm just going to read the whole thing. In Antiochus and his daughter, you have heard of monstrous lust, the due and just reward. In Pericles, his queen and daughter seen, although assailed with fortune fierce and keen, virtue preserved from fell destruction's blast, led on by heaven and crowned with joy at last. In Helicanus, may you well describe a figure of truth, of faith, of loyalty. In Reverend Saramon, there well appears the worth that learned charity I wears. For wicked Cleon and his wife, when fame had spread his cursed de deed to the honored name of Pericles to rage the city turn, that him and his they in his palace burn. The gods for murder seemed so content to punish, although not done, but meant. So on your patience, evermore attending, new joy wait on you. Here our play has ending. Short and sweet. Everybody's happy. And the bad guy's dead. Literally burned to death. Like hand of God raining fire. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, the, the only complicated thing here is that Cleon dies. And he like is not complicit in in right. any of the bad like Dionysus is a bitch and cleon is a nice guy who loved marina and was really happy to raise her up and then yeah just sort of got caught in the in the crossfire as it were it's too bad for him he hitched so. his horse to the wrong pony <clears throat> yeah the way that didn't Dionysus. make any sense you can't hitch to a pony you can't hitch a horse to a pony what am i saying <laughs> <laughs> it's sunday man uh, you get it you get it you know what's up. He hitched his cart to the wrong pony. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yay. It's a good metaphors. play, y'all. 
it's a really really good play but i think see it yeah maybe maybe don't just try to sit down and read it because it's a mess don't even try to listen to it like i i really enjoy a lot of times listening to audiobook versions of shakespeare's plays because i love hearing the words but and sure that's good for this play too if you just want the words but this is such because the the location jumps and because of all of the transitions that have to happen, you really do. You need to see it. You need to see yeah. a good production. Yes. Um, I never, I didn't get to see the OSF one from a couple of years ago, but it no, was so good that oh, it toured. Like they brought it yeah. over to the Folger. They took yeah. it, you know, they, they kind of took it around the U.S. It was that good. And um, looked beautiful. It did. Now all they did fabric. silks the right way. Yeah. They had some great, texture reminiscent of what i first saw in sydney but they apparently did it much better because people loved that production yeah find you a good one (laughs) real talk yeah and then go see it all right is it it's shakes bubble gossip time yeah but it's it's been a quiet week and yeah and like the stuff that i want to gossip about i can't now because of my job (laughs) (laughs) sucks to suck I mean, okay, one thing we can talk about very selfishly is that, you know, I left California and my job in Livermore, and I am mm-hmm. the education associate for the American Shakespeare Center now in my wow. day job, and that's really awesome, and I get to lead workshops and tours and help run camp, uh, the summer camp for kids, and um, and I get to be a full-time teaching artist, which is a rare and lucky, lucky thing, and I'm very happy and grateful and i i don't know what kind of stars had to align um to make that happen for me but i'm very happy about it so yeah we're we're so glad that those stars aligned for you and it's gonna be awesome i'm super excited yeah and you have a new house and i have a house it's a weird crooked (laughs) little house (laughs) on a crooked little street it is yeah on a with a crooked six and a crooked style and a crooked cat and a crooked cat's (laughs) <laughs> and a very crooked dog i can't wait so. to come home and see it um but in, in back in shakespeare shakes bubble land yeah. well it's been a quiet week and because we recorded um a little bit late last week we right. we caught the late breaking gossip out of the globe the casting announcement for right what's his ass and the other guy hamlet and uh, as you like it <laughs> right. so not a lot to talk about this week so i thought maybe I would talk about what I'm working on. Please do. Um, yeah. So I've got two seminars this semester, and it is seminar paper time for both of them. Um, and I am writing about the function of the chess game as an emblem of manipulation in Women Beware Women, and also probably The Tempest, although I'm about halfway done with the paper and I'm just scratching the surface of Women Beware Women, so Tempest might get written out. And then in my other seminar, I'm talking about representations of trial and justice in The Winter's Tale and its source text, Pandosto. I don't want to blow my load on that one because it's you're just going to hear all about it in uh, The Winter's Tale 201 episode whenever that comes around. Um, but I'm having a really good time. I get to write about two of my favorite plays, Winter's Tale and Women, Boy, or Women. And I'm thinking about objects on stage and and the way they serve as sort of a scenic and thematic synecdoche that's about all there is i mean it's a half written paper yeah. you know it's it's in in the the working stages it's underdeveloped but cool. not a lot of people have written about 
games on the early modern stage. It's pretty much just Gina Bloom out there uh, crushing it like she does. So it's nice to be able to add my voice to the mix. I just thought of some gossip that I can't okay. relate. Okay. Great. So thank you. I mean, sorry, not to like jump on your, that your ideas. Mm. I mean, that's, that's it. That was totally about cool. But, um, I, I just remembered that, um, this morning I was observing a workshop and I heard, uh, the workshop leader follow up on a thesis project that you and I had shouted out a while ago, um, hmm. about blood on costumes. Remember how we talked about, yeah, was that Jack Sharkey? Jack Sharkey was, Great. um, I think the last time we talked about his ideas, of course, they were from, you know, thesis roundtable, and he had probably not written a ton yet, right. and and of it's course like not drawn conclusions. So this is the time of year when master students are defending theses, and you know, mm. and it turns out uh, apparently from his presentation, this was related, so sort of third hand, somebody who had observed Jack Sharkey's thesis presentation. Basically, he had arrived at the conclusion that blood on costumes, like live blood mm -hmm. on costumes, was reserved for moments of when when someone is in uh, a state of undress, like wearing a linen shift, like Lady sure. Mac, uh, something that could be bleached, you know, something that could be cleaned rather easily, like a, a something linen. Um, also in the Roman plays, because they were known to wear sort of, you know, muslin um, toga style things over their lovely, expensive, early modern costumes. So so I guess the um, you can like do a stabbing or things like that, that and then immediately have the character exit. So you don't need to display the blood mm -hmm. as much. So that's mm -hmm. how companies kept their costumes, which they often got from um, rich dead patrons. They kept the costumes pristine right and those fabrics pristine uh and managed to mainly only get blood on linens by cool by using blood only when someone is in like a nightgown or a toga uh, live blood on stage so i thought and i'm in and jack sharkey if you're listening or if anybody else is listening if i misinterpreted that or if i heard wrong because this is literally gossip <laughs> <laughs> um, that I heard like third hand that I might, you sure. know, be, we're playing the telephone game at this point. So if I'm, if I'm getting it wrong, get in touch with us, let us know. I'm happy to clarify, but I thought that was fascinating one. Cause I love the arc of someone's research, right. Where he started right. out. I have this idea that I want to explore about like blood on these expensive costumes. Oh, it turns out that they didn't want or put blood on these expensive costumes. They found ways around it. They were creative. So it was very cool. Very cool. Just throwing that uh, out there. Our good friend Linnea is defending her thesis tomorrow at Yay. two o'clock. This episode, of course, will not air until after she's defended. A but, week yeah. after. But we know we she's going to kill it. So uh, she will have killed it. Yes. <laughs> this is our preemptive good job killing it, Linnea. Yeah. Good job, you. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that's about it. Yeah. You that's that's all I got. No, that's all, all I got. Righty. Well then, hey everybody, thanks so much for listening. We hope that you, of course, leave this podcast more informed than when you started. We hope you enjoyed listening. Yeah, and tune in next week for our final episode of the season in which we will talk about our very first non-Shakespeare play, Oh, mm -hmm. the Cruel Irony, The Spanish Tragedy 101. So tune in for that. It's going to be extra special. I love that play. I know you do. I know. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell all your friends. Rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla, which is H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. I, me, poor maid, born in a tempest when my mother died, this world to me is as a lasting storm pouring me from my friends. Oh, oh my god, Mm -hmm. that made me tear up. I put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes, burning up my rubber going 9 to 5, I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die, I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife. Early Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, If we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Have a kid, have a family, gonna marry me the first woman I see. dream team of Beaumont and Fletcher and their second mate Massinger. That's a pun, right? Second yes. mate? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's more like an extended metaphor, but yeah, sure. Uh, I'm trying mate to be and funny. mate, mate like friend, mate like shipmate. Okay. Okay. That's, it's good shit. All right.